I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. All right. So Dr. Rinaldi is, has a PhD in biology from MIT and since experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea, missing periods herself, Dr. Rinaldi has been on a mission to spread awareness of the condition on how to recover. And it's ironic because I have actually read her book and used it to recover myself. So it's really cool for me to have her on today. The book, No Period, Now What?, which she actually published in 2016, And I didn't know that it was recently updated in 2019 to become more health at every size aligned. That is Mm -hmm. amazing. This book is a comprehensive resource. I would call it my Bible, especially at the time when I was in recovery, um, that underlies our current understanding of the triggers for amenorrhea and what steps to take for recovery and treatments to use for recovery and pregnancy as needed. So thank you for coming on, Nicola. I am so excited to have you. I so appreciate you having me. This is, this is really exciting. Yeah, it's going to be a really good conversation. And we're going to kind of walk you guys through the overview of kind of what hypothalamic, I'm just going to call it HA, <laughs> for the sake of the conversation. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> it's a mouthful for me and I'm sure for you as well to have to keep saying it over and over again. So we're going to kind of walk through an overview, what it is, how it's diagnosed, some signs and symptoms. And just because it's the first time that we're talking about it on the channel, but if you are looking for more in-depth information, I highly recommend picking up the book, No Period, Now What? Because it is it dives into the science, it's got more recommendations. And I just it's you'll definitely want more information after this talk, if this is something that resonates with you. Great, thank you. So what is HA? So hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, the the name really says it all. So the amenorrhea part is you're missing your period. Uh, The technical definition is for three months or more. it can also be, in some cases, like periods that are very far apart. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that. And then the hypothalamic part is that the, there's a small area of your brain called the hypothalamus, and that actually controls your reproductive cycles. And so this is amenorrhea due to your hypothalamus being shut down or suppressed. Um, that happens for a combination of reasons, typically. It's usually some mixture of underfueling is pretty much the biggest driver. Um, it can be intentional. It can be unintentional. So, you know, somebody goes on a diet, like I, you know, that was, that was how I gave myself HA was I decided to severely limit my calories and I was exercising a ton. Um, so it's a combination of underfueling um, and then 
overexercise and the cortisol is generated when you do high intensity exercise in particular, um, and then stress as well. So psychological stress. So those, those three components can be, you know, it could be like super, super stressful event that happens can cause somebody to miss a period or two. Typically it doesn't cause long-term amenorrhea. Um, but then if you have, you know, stress and a lot of exercise, then you're more likely to, to, to become amenorrhea. Um, and then if you throw under fueling into the mix, then, you know, that, that's typically the, the biggest driver. Um, so for many women with, with HA, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, it derives from often an increase in exercise intensity without, you know, without then changing fueling or just not understanding necessarily how much fuel our bodies need for different activities. Because I think that the message that's out there in the sort of general knowledge base media, whatever is, you know, you need a certain number of calories a day and, you know, it's actually less than we probably need. And then, you know, we don't think about how much, how many, how much energy our exercise is burning. And so we often, um, you know, we think we're doing all the right things health-wise in terms of, you know, we're always told lose weight to be healthy, exercise to be healthy. And, you know, when you have those combinations, then that can actually be going too far and cause you to be become unhealthy in that you lose your period and have all the negative consequences that are associated with that. Wow, that was, you already dialed into my next question there. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I like to describe to my clients in kind of a general sense of the body just not feeling safe in, in mm-hmm. any way. Like it's, you know, you've got that, that perfect storm and, you know, like you mentioned, I think it's really important that sometimes people have really good intentions where they're just trying to eat healthier or, you know, maybe falling into kind of diet culture and, and pursuing a healthier lifestyle or feeling better or more confident. And sometimes, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a marathon runner or an exerciser to experience this. Now, in your experience, have you seen clients who maybe the physiologic stress is overriding, like say somebody doesn't really exercise or they are really, you know, eating intuitively and getting what you would consider plenty of calories. Do you see um, like mental stress ever be a main driver of HA? It's extremely, extremely unusual. I mean, some people are like, oh, it's only stress for me. But then when I go into how they're actually fueling through the day or, you know, how much exercise they're doing, you know, there are often um, things that they that they can change in that regard to sort of help their body to feel more safe. Um, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily describe it as safety. It's it, the way I think of it is that our body has a certain requirement for energy through the day. Mm. And if we're not providing that level of energy, then it has to shut things down in order to survive. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are things that our bodies have to do, like pump our blood and breathe and give energy to our brain. And it's like, those are the most important things for survival. Everything else is kind of a, you know, more of a nice to have. And so it's, you know, our bodies are trying to um, sort of take whatever energy we're giving them and it has to keep us alive. That, so that, that's like A number Priority. one and then everything else. Yeah, everything else is just, um, you know, is extras and particularly the menstrual cycle. That's, 
you know, that's definitely a nice to have, not a need to have mm. in the perspective of our daily survival. And so that's, that is one of the things that's very easy to shut down. Um, so, yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of cool when you think about it, just in the way that our body is really smart in terms of prioritizing what it needs to use that energy for, if we're giving it limited energy, you know, it'll go to our organs or our brain and yeah. it says, well, making babies is not a priority. So we're going to shut that process down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, our bodies are remarkable. I've learned so much about our physiology and everything through this and just the different, the, you know, our, hypo, our hypothalamus doesn't just control our reproductive cycles. It controls everything. Like, mm-hmm. so it, it secretes corticotropin releasing hormone that controls our adrenal glands. It can, it secretes thyrotropin releasing hormone that controls our thyroid. Um, it secretes um, oxytocin. It secretes, um, what's the, ADH antidiuretic hormone that controls the water balance in our bodies. It's like it's this major control center. And, you know, everybody tends to think of those other parts as being separate, but it's like the, the hypothalamus can control everything. And so I've seen, I, I had one client who, um, you know, was on growth hormone and all these other hormones. And I'm like, I really think you just need to eat more and cut your exercise. And, you know, she was on like, this whole cornucopia and none of her doctors could figure out what was wrong with her. And it turned out, you know, she followed the recovery plan and went off growth hormone and was actually able to get pregnant a few months later. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing how, when you really look at things with that in mind, that the hypothalamus is controlling everything based on energy balance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's actually remarkable how our bodies can, um, recover in so many ways that, that seem all, all to be separate, but they're really not because they're all controlled by that master regulator. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just so excited for the work that you've already done and the work that you continue to do, because there's so many females who go to, you know, specialists and herbalists and the top doctors in the cities. And, you know, they'll come and say, well, I've done this and I've done this test and they put me on all these herbs and they, have done and and I've gone through that process myself where mm-hmm. particularly with my digestive issues for the longest time I was trying to figure out why they were getting so bad and how how my health was declining so quickly and at the end of the day it came down to the fact that I just wasn't eating enough. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's it's amazing all the different things that can be um, associated with that. I think one one that's um, that I sort of discovered the basis of more recently is having to pee more frequently. And so mm. women with HA often have to, you know, often wake up in the middle of the night having to pee. And it's so interesting. So when, when our bodies don't have enough estrogen, which is one of the symptoms of HA, not a cause, um, the, the lining of the bladder actually thins and the urine penetrates more easily. And so our brains get that signal to pee more often um, mm-hmm. than they would when, you know, when you're normally cycling and you have the, you know, this large increase in estrogen during the middle of each cycle. Um, and so I think that's, that's a fascinating side effect of, you know, under fueling and having, you know, having a missing period. And now I'm just thinking of menopause too, right? So when you are going, when you're through menopause and estrogen is declining, you'll hear women say like, I have to wake up and pee in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the yep. same, it's the same thing, right? Yeah, it, it is. Wow. It is. So many of the, many of the symptoms of HA are similar to what women experience when they have menopause because 
hormonally, the two situations are quite similar because it's just a consistently low estradiol level and low progesterone level because we're not ovulating. So it's a different, it's a different reason, you know, when you're, when you're, when you have HA, it's because your hypothalamus has shut your reproductive system down. When you, once you've gone through menopause, it's because your body is just no longer cycling due to the, um, you know, the, the biology of how we age. Um, but the symptoms are often the same. And that's, that's where, that's why we have a fairly good understanding of the long-term consequences of HA is mm. from looking at the consequences for women who have gone through menopause. So things like decreased bone density, um, potential heart issues, um, and you know, one that I have in the book that is not confirmed anywhere, but it's, you know, it's a possibility is um, sort of an increased risk of early dementia or you know, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disease. Mm. Um, and I do know for women who are who are sort of experiencing extreme underfueling that there can also be mental effects of that, sort of a, a brain fog, a cloudiness, um, just you know not being able to pay attention to things. So that's you know, that's another thing that can improve when you give your body the fuel that it needs. Because I think something like thirty percent of the fuel we use goes to our brain. So I tell clients that all the time when they're like. Yeah you know, I didn't work out today or, you know, I haven't worked out all week or I'm not, you know, running anymore as much as I used to. It's, and I say to them, your body requires a base amount of calories, your basal, mm -hmm. basal metabolic rate. And, and a lot of that is actually going to their brains. And, you know, some of them are working or, you know, COVID has increased their stress levels or they're in school and they're, they're using more of their thought process and their brain fuel and, mm -hmm to remind them that your calories are actually fueling that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something that we really don't think about, especially when you're like, I'm going to go on a diet. Well, which parts of your body do you want to not fuel anymore? <laughs> you know? I love that. That's such a good question to ask. Which parts of your body are you willing to give up the fuel yeah. for? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I do want to talk about the long-term effects, but first you had mentioned some symptoms. So you mentioned um, urinating frequently in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. obviously not having a period. Um, would you, did you say for three months total? Is that kind of the criteria? What, what would yeah. you say classic symptoms of HA? Um, so yeah, so missing period for three months or more is the technical diagnosis, but you know, I've, you can, if you, if you miss one period and you've been regular for a long time, um, you know, it, it is worth thinking about, well, have I made any changes in my diet or my exercise and, you know, or is it, is it possibly due to stress? Because it's, it's somewhat unusual to just miss a, you know, miss a period randomly. I mean, it does, it does happen, um, but there's typically some underlying cause. And, you know, certainly if it's, you know, if you're getting to two or three, then it's definitely worth sort of examining, you know, have you made changes in your lifestyle or what, what could be going on? Mm -hmm. um, so other symptoms, um, you know, feeling cold all the time is another big one because, again, it takes energy for our bodies to keep us warm. And so that's, in, that's another easy place for it to save energy. Um, brittle hair and nails is another really common complaint um, from sort of chronic underfueling. Uh, dry skin, um, you know, um, trying to think. Digestive issues is an, is another one that's a, that's a big one, and that's you know I'm I'm really looking forward to chatting you with, with you more about that because I think that that stems from you know if you start going on a diet and then you you know your body maybe doesn't 
have enough energy to make all of the enzymes and things that it needs to digest food. And so then you start feeling eh when you eat certain foods. And then it's like, well, which food should I cut out? And then you cut out more foods and now you're eating, now you're getting even less energy and now you feel worse and more bloating and more constipation. And, you know, so what should I cut out next? And we have this idea that like everything that happens to our body is because of certain foods that we eat, as opposed to like, let's just eat more. And maybe that's problem. I mean, it seems that that's definitely the case for some people. I know it's not true for everyone, but. Yeah. But for a lot of people, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times, and this was me too. I got to the point where I was probably eating five foods total. I think, you know, I would eat one food. I would have a reaction. I think, I think the foods were, it was green beans, white fish, chicken, asparagus, and like squash. And then I guess, Mm -hmm. I guess six rice cakes. And Mm -hmm. it was because, you know, I would just eat something and then I'd say, Oh, well I'm bloated or I had bad gas or I didn't go to the bathroom that day. So it must be that food. And I was constantly trying to pinpoint what the food was that I was Mm -hmm. eating, which then just further exacerbated the issue because then you're just chronically restricting your calories. And so I see clients do this all the time. And it's, it's really frustrating because they're trying to figure out, is it gluten? Is it dairy? And then Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. have all the stuff that's going on in the media. That's telling you that all of these things are bad and these fats are bad and these carbs are bad. And then they're confused and it's going to drive their want to restrict in hope that they're going to find resolution because nobody wants to feel bloated or uncomfortable or, Mm -hmm. you know, their intentions are so good. And it's just so sad to see, you know, a lot of people suffer in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I I was just thinking about other symptoms and I think there can also be sort of emotional uh, and anxiety symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're, when you're chronically under fueling, um, you know, you can have less patience, um, be more angry with people. And I think that's, you know, I, 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 I can't describe a mechanism for why that would happen, but you know, that's, that's another common experience. And people say like, when I started eating more, I had so much more patience with my kids or with my, you know, with my partner or, you know, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, so I think that's another, another big area where people can see improvements in their overall life when they start actually fueling their bodies properly. I like to think of the the Snickers commercial when, um, you know, he's hangry. Uh-huh. He's like, you're not yourself when you're hangry. And I know it's obviously <laughs> a, a little, there's some nuances to that, of course, but yes. the idea that, you know, when your brain is occupied trying to keep you alive and you're not feeding it, then your focus is going to decrease. I, I've had a lot of clients who are, you know, working in high stress jobs where if they're mm-hmm. restricting and then they can't focus and that's going to impact, you know, their ability to do their job or, you know, show up in life as a, as a friend or as a partner, yeah. it, it can be really debilitating to, to life. And, and, you know, we think of it as just, okay, well, I'm just doing this to change my physical body or be mm-hmm. a better athlete or, you know, whatever it may be, but seeing all and just hearing all of these different ways that it can really impact us is it's like is it really worth it right I would argue very much that it's not (laughs) I would as well absolutely and so in terms of the digestive issues you know restricting calories for long periods of time I see a lot of constipation and Mm -hmm. some people won't even realize that they are constipated because they might be having a daily bowel movement but their transit time is so slow that that bowel movement is not necessarily completely emptying. Um, Their transit time is slower. This can also lead to things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 
Um, mm. you know, not always the case, but it's definitely possible. Um, I would say dysbiosis is very common because mm-hmm. basically the imbalance of the good and bad bacteria, because you're restricting your food intake so much. And research has shown that that actually reduces the diversity of your gut bacteria. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that a diverse gut is a healthy gut. And Mm -hmm. this specific research was mostly done in clients who have anorexia nervosa, but their gut bacteria was significantly um, the diversity was decreased, which, which is interesting to me because you brought up the the point about um, neurodegenerative diseases and dementia Mm-hmm. And we have strong research to link neurodegenerative diseases to um, a reduced diversity in gut bacteria. So that could oh, wow. be a possible mm-hmm. mechanism as to how that happens, um, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to make that statement without knowing exactly, but right. it make, would make sense yeah. to me just thinking about it. Um, but also thinking about, you know, where the calories are coming from too. So fats, which are very lubricating for our digestive system, carbs, which help to feed the healthy bacteria, the prebiotics, the starches that, that make our gut healthy. Um, you mentioned digestive en- enzymes, so protein, which mm-hmm. helps make stomach acid and rebuilds the lining of our gut and help, helps us make those digestive enzymes. I see a lot of clients who are coming to me, you know, taking a bunch of digestive enzymes, and I'll say to them, you know, are they helping you? Oftentimes they don't help, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. why aren't we making digestive enzymes? Because if we're not making them properly, then we need to figure out the root cause as to why that is actually happening. Yep. So there's there's so much related to gut health. I could talk about all of it basically, but um, I think maybe we could go back to the long-term effects of HA and then maybe some tips for uh, how to kind of mitigate some of these digestive issues, which yeah. have a, a bunch of ideas there. That would be great. Yeah, so I, mean, I think the long-term issues with HA, um, the biggest one I would say is probably on the bone density side. Um, you know, I have seen a lot of women who recover their cycles and have a really nice increase in bone density. Um, you know, a, a woman I worked with not too long ago, uh, we got her cycles back and within a year she had gone from osteoporosis to osteopenia in her spine and osteopenia to normal in her hip. And that was at the age of 39. Um, so, you know, you can, you can see nice increases in bone density upon recovery, which is why I would strongly suggest to anyone who has HA you know, to work on recovery as soon as possible um, because you do build more bone in your teens and your 20s and you know it definitely slows down as you age. Um, I do think that there's sort of upon recovery there can be kind of a burst of bone building um, similar to what happens uh, in the postpartum phase when somebody stops breastfeeding because during breastfeeding there's a, a fairly significant decrease in bone density because if you think about it your baby's bones are, I mean, your baby is tripling in size in the first year of their existence. And, you know, that's a lot of bones that have to be built and they get the calcium from you if you're exclusively breastfeeding. So, and that, that calcium comes out of your bones. So once you stop breastfeeding and get cycles back, there's a, you know, there's a significant jump in bone density to basically back to where it was when you, you know, when you started breastfeeding, which is really cool. And so I I think something similar happens with um when with recovery from HA, but obviously like the, the the sooner you can do that and the less bone density you can lose over time, the better, you know, the better off you will be long term. Um, 
I think that's probably the biggest long-term consequence. In terms of the heart issues and the dementia issues, um, that seems to be um, sort of less of a less of a long-term consequence once you have your period back. It seems like things kind of normalize more quickly with the return of estrogen. Um, but again, you know, I'm not a cardiologist. I think we really don't know a whole lot about those. So there's um, there is a study that's being done by Dr. Cassandra Schufelt out in um, in the uh, LA area, I think, that I'm looking forward to data from because um, I've sent a number of women her way to to um, you know to participate in the study, and there she's looking at uh, changes in heart function with amenorrhea and estrogen and recovery. So I think that'll be wow. really interesting to see. I look forward to that. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned too, you know, the mental health side of things as well. Like we're obviously talking more, maybe short term. And, you know, once you're through that recovery phase, these things can go away, but you know, not having proper mental health. I mean, that's a, Mm -hmm. that's definitely a motivation. It doesn't, some people will say, well, I don't want to get pregnant. I, you know, it's kind of nice not having a period. And although sure it is for a little while, but if you're not thinking about these other effects that, you might not think you care about right now, but right. You, you will definitely care about when, especially if you're active and you decide you want to stay active for the rest of your life. If your bone health is suffering, you're going to start getting injuries. I see a lot of females getting injured and they're coming to me saying, what supplements can I take and how can mm-hmm. I improve? And it's, you know, we know just, in the eat. Re- <laughs> yeah, just eat more calories and, and pro, you know, proteins involved with bones, but mm-hmm. calories, calories mm-hmm. are so important for bone health and our gut bacteria having adequate balance of healthy gut bacteria is directly linked to bone health and bone rebuilding. Mm-hmm. And studies have consistently failed to show any improvement in bone health with calcium vitamin D supplements alone. Yeah. Yep. And and you mentioned cortisol too, which cortisol has been well known mm-hmm. to have um, deleterious effect on bone health and having high cortisol is associated with the severity of bone loss in any kind of underfeeding. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I looked up some, some research studies before this and, and I mean, I'm always looking at stress because especially with COVID and, and its impact on health and digestion, stress is such a huge player in any, any sort of health issue that we're talking about. So it's important to to know that as well. Yeah. It was actually really interesting, right? When COVID started, I had so many people messaging me like my cycle is really weird this month. And I was like, it's stress, you know, just, it it will normalize. Don't, don't freak out, you know, don't freak out more than you already are. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it it was, it, it was, I got so many messages about it. Like my, you know, my, my I'm not, I haven't ovulated yet this month or my period is late. And I'm like, just, you know, it's, it's stress. It was a really trying time and still is. I think we've gotten a little bit more used to the new normal for now. Um, yeah, that yeah. and also, um, you know, some people are, I, I work with a lot of runners in Boston uh, through Wellness in Motion and you know, the gyms are closed and people mm-hmm. up inside. So they're more inclined to maybe manage stress by running more, walking more, or doing these high intensity home workouts that all these influencers yeah. are posting on Instagram. And I think that has also played a role in fueling this, this condition with some females. I've also seen mm-hmm. it go the other way where some yes. people are yes. like, 
well, I'm home. Nobody's going to exactly. see me for the next six months or so. So I'm not going to put so much pressure on myself. I'm going to eat whatever I want. And, and then, so there has actually been some really positives with some of my clients, which just makes my heart happy because yes, absolutely. it's forcing you to kind of reevaluate, you know, you know, why am I trying to fit into a size two jeans? I haven't put jeans on in six months. So, you know, mm-hmm. not getting in my head about it, which is, you know, a really positive thing to see. Unfortunate that a pandemic had to, you know, open that realization up, but looking at the positives of what that can do. Now, this is, we're not going to go into too much detail, but because I know it's a heavy topic, but birth control, if someone Mm -hmm. isn't getting a period back, uh, is birth control the solution? And kind of how can that kind of mask maybe what's going on? So I really, really do not like birth control or hormone replacement therapy as a quote unquote solution for HA because yes, it can give you a bleed, but it does not address the underlying issues at all. It's a bandaid. Um, and the hormones that are provided are, you know, there are over 20 hormones that are involved during menstrual cycles and the birth control pill provides two of those. So, you know, I think there's an idea that, oh, you know, it'll protect your bones. And, you know, it, it does it does ameliorate some of the other symptoms, like particularly the frequent urination, um, things that are directly related to the to the low estradiol levels. But, you know, to, to think that those, those two artificial hormones are going to replace the 20 that normally cycle through our menstrual cycle seems um, a little unrealistic to me. And again, it, it, it's not addressing the underlying issues. It's not going to make you feel emotionally better. In fact, birth control pills often can make people feel more, more depressed or more anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, you know, they, the, the studies have found that the birth control pill in particular can maintain bone density where it is, but it's not necessarily going to build bone density and certainly is not as good as having natural menstrual cycles. Um, the hormone replacement therapy seems to be a little bit better because the way that the birth control pills is metabolized is through your liver. And um, that metabolism actually suppresses another hormone called IGF-1 that is also involved in bone density building. Mm. So it's, um, you know, so the hormone replacement therapy is better in terms of bone density, but it's still, you know, the, the idea that you should be on something like that for the rest of your life rather than maybe making some changes to your diet and exercise, um, I think is not one that I support. I think, you know, having natural menstrual cycles is way better. And interestingly, you know, you talked about not having a period can be kind of nice. I just, um, I just got a menstrual cup and oh my God, it's life changing. I have one. It's like, I mean, I played ice hockey and, you know, I, I had a little bit of leakage because I should have emptied the cup before I played. But even then, you know, it's, and it, I don't feel it. And, you know, basically it's like you don't have a period until you go to the bathroom and empty the cup and clean it. And so it's like a whole new world. So I totally suggest that to anyone who's listening. That's a great, I, I didn't get one. My cousin is, she's just kind of randomly into like weird things. And she saw a discount for one on Groupon and she was like, want to get one together? And <laughs> I don't know why, but I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, we both tried it out. And at first I was a little, you know, how does this work? I don't know how I feel about this. 
this and now I'm obsessed with it. And it's so nice mm-hmm. not having to buy, first of all, you save a ton of money. And second of all, you save the hassle of it. And it is, it's kind of like, it's not even. And there. it's so much better for the environment. I mean, yeah. you know, so many reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How about an IUD in terms of, um, you know, I, that makes you not have a period. And I think some people are concerned of, is that, is that healthy to not have a period? Like hypothalamic amenorrhea aside, kind of the idea of having an IUD forcing you to not have a period. What are your thoughts on that? Or is that too much of a heavy question? So the copper IUD, the copper IUD, I believe you do continue to have periods and menstruate. So if you, if you stop bleeding on that, then again, you need to do a check-in with regards to what am I doing lifestyle-wise, eating, exercise, stress, all of that. Um, on the hormonal IUDs, um, I, I actually just got mine taken out. Um, and I, I decided to go on it because I did. I, I looked at the research and it seemed that about 80% of women do continue to ovulate regularly while on the IUD. And that was the case for me. Um, so I tracked ovulation through temping, through cervical mucus changes. I had my hormones take, you know, I had blood drawn a couple of times that confirmed that I was ovulating. And then I would get like this mini bleed, like a little wipe of pink would be my like quote unquote period. Um, occasionally I, you know, I'd need a light day pad for a couple of days. Um, so, you know, I think that that can be a good choice for long-term contraception. Um, but I, again, I think learning to track your ovulation and making sure that you are ovulating, I think is important because the, you know, the, the estradiol levels during a normal cycle, you know, you start with an estradiol level of something like 20 to 30 picograms per mil that goes up by about tenfold in the middle of your cycle and then stays up by about fivefold between the time when you ovulate and when you get your period. So that's a significant increase in estradiol. Um, and then progesterone actually stays low until you ovulate and then goes up by between 20 to 40 fold. So again, that's way more than you get from the, you know, from just the IUD or from the, you know, from birth control pills or hormone replacement therapy. And so I think that, you know, in both of those, both of those hormones are important for bone density and, you know, a lot of other things. So I think that's why I don't see birth control pills, hormone replacement therapy as being as good for our systems as natural menstrual cycles. And the IUD can be okay if you do continue to ovulate. But I think that that's something that you know, you can't necessarily know in advance. Although, like I said, the, the study I found said that about 80% of women did continue to ovulate on the IUD. Um, and that's because it's a very localized uh, dose of low dose of progesterone. So it works by keeping your keeping your uterine lining thin, so there's nothing for an embryo to implant into, and that's why you also get very minor periods. Mm. Um, but and you know it, it also has other mechanisms by which it can prevent pregnancy. Um, but so it's it's not systemic, so it's not you know the level of progesterone is not high enough to go to your hypothalamus and suppress your hypothalamus, which is what the what the other forms of birth control do. So I think that's why you can continue to ovulate on the, on the Marina or the Skyla. Um, I like the sound of that, the sound of not suppressing your brain from doing yes. the hypothalamus from doing what it should be doing. And yes. I actually had a client yesterday who said to me, she's on the IUD, the non-hormonal IUD. And she said, you know, last we started kind of really focusing on fueling and adequate nutrition and, and really focusing on gut health. And she started noticing as she started, you know, eating better and and reducing her exercise that she actually started to notice like increased hunger and certain hormonal changes where maybe Mm -hmm. she wasn't ovulating before. 
I think it's really important that you just mentioned, you know, even if you're using an IUD to still do things like tracking your basal body temperature, tracking your cervical mucus, so that you can still see what's going on with your body and still have some good indicators of health. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think tracking ovulation is incredibly important because um, there are, there have been a number of studies that have found that particularly in those who exercise a lot, um, even if you're having a regular bleed, there can be other issues with your menstrual cycle. So you can have what's called a luteal phase defect, which is when the luteal phase is the time between when you ovulate and when you get a period. And if that's short, um, A, it means you can't get pregnant. And B, you also have a much lower level of progesterone, which then can impact your bone density. So having a normal length luteal phase, which is sort of 10 to 14 days, I think is definitely something to be aware of and you know, to track. And the other thing that can happen is that you can have anovulatory cycles. So that's where you get a bleed, but you didn't actually ovulate. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that, that's something like a third of women that exercise have uh, anovulatory cycles. So I think it's really important to do the things that you were suggesting. Look at your cervical mucus and how that's changing through the month um, and track your basal body temperature. Maybe use ovulation predictor sticks. Um, to figure out, am I ovulating? When do I ovulate? Are my ovulations consistent? Um, and that can also be a really good marker for if you, you know, if you're making changes to your to your eating or your exercise. Like, how is that affecting your cycle? Is it making your ovulation late? Is it, you know, is it making it earlier? Is it mm. shortening your luteal phase? Like, understanding your menstrual cycle to that level, I think, is really, really important and super helpful. You know, whether you want to get pregnant or not, but. Certainly when you do want to get pregnant, you know, knowing when you ovulate makes, makes a huge difference to your, you know, to your potential success rates. Mm. And also digestive issues, you know, because I specialize in, in gut health, you know, I'll have clients say, I don't know, I got really constipated this time, or I had really bad diarrhea this day. And, you know, I feel like I'm noticing a trend and I'll say, well, you know, where are you in your cycle? And mm -hmm. where were, you know, I was really hungry last week or my, I was really low energy and learning where you are in your cycle as a female can be such a powerful tool for adjusting your nutrition, your exercise, and really working with your physiology rather than mm -hmm. being saying, oh, well, I had diarrhea. Well, okay, did you just get your period? And did your hormones completely drop? Or, you know, was yeah. your estrogen really high? Are you estrogen, you know, excess? And so there's, there's something really powerful about gathering that data and in, in just understanding your body on a deeper level so that you can make those connections and possibly improve those symptoms or just kind of have the knowledge to know, okay, I was mm -hmm. hungrier this week. That makes sense. I need more food because yeah. I'm, you know, in this phase of my cycle. Do you find that those kinds of things vary from person to person in terms of when during their cycle they feel hungrier or might have you know, different digestive issues or is it, for, is it consistent between people? I would say there, it definitely is different. I've noticed clients who have said that they feel a lot more hungry on right before ovulation or right during ovulation. Mm -hmm. And I've also had clients who it has been right before their period that they get really hungry and there's different reasons also why that could happen. It could be that they're not getting enough omega-3 fatty acids and, you know, there's a lot of inflammation going on in the body. It could be, you know, some sort of hormonal imbalance where that could be contributing to those symptoms. But more often than not, I do see a lot of people, a lot of my clients will say, as soon as they get their period, 
their stools are much looser. And mm-hmm. if they're not having a period to begin with, they're always going to err on more of the side of constipation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> it's really cool. It's, it's really cool, but it's also very complex. And mm-hmm. um, that's why I always recommend just kind of doing the tracking side of things. Although it can seem tedious at some times, it's helpful for me as a clinician to kind of make my recommendations, but also for them to, to make those connections in the brain so that they can mm-hmm. kind of be motivated to, to tap in a little bit more. Yeah. Now, Eating disorders are definitely an area where I see, you know, a lot of digestive issues and a lot of people don't have to have an eating disorder to have what what I call the functional gut disorders of things like irritable bowel syndrome, gastric reflux, bloating, Mm -hmm. constipation, diarrhea, but up to 80, up to 98% of these patients who have disordered eating are more likely to have these functional gut disorders And when you put that on top of the fact that the person maybe already doesn't feel confident in their body or doesn't feel, you know, great to begin with having constipation, bloating is, Mm -hmm. is kind of a, a a recipe for disaster in in my practice. I see it all the time. And a statistic that I also found really interesting was that childhood GI issues are a key risk factor for later development of having an eating disorder. Wow. Interesting. Which resonated with me because when growing up, I was not breastfed and I was diagnosed with lactose intolerant as a baby. And then I had frequent antibiotic use my entire life. So Mm -hmm. I was really kind of set up for not having a very healthy gut. (laughs) And that definitely led into my orthorexia and some of the habits that I had. And it was almost like a PTSD of like, I hated, I had a hypersensitivity to any sort of bloating or any sort of reaction that I had in my gut that actually fueled me becoming more restrictive. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is an interesting statistic. So I always ask that in my intake form about, you know, history of antibiotic use or um, the method that they were born C-section versus vaginal, because that also impacts your gut bacterial composition. Mm -hmm likely mm-hmm. will will also bring me back to, okay, well, did you always have digestive issues growing up? And people will say, oh yeah, I've been constipated my whole life, or I've always gotten really bad stomach aches or, you know, really had bad bloating for much of my life. And those things often kind of lead to, you know, potentially the development of HA. It definitely can increase the risk for that. Interesting. Yeah. So I think we should definitely touch on some tips for people to resolve GI issues if they Mm -hmm. are recovering from HA or if they're coming back from any type of restrictive eating. I see a lot of clinicians telling clients that, especially gastroenterologists, they'll say, well, you know, once you restore your weight and just go through the refeeding process, all of your GI issues will go away. And I've definitely seen this. I I Mm -hmm. have seen this where I've had a client who you know, we restored her, her caloric intake, we reduced her exercise. And she was, you know, I'm totally fine. My digestive system is, you know, running smoothly. I'm having a daily bowel movement. I don't have bloating. But a lot of the times there are clients who do need some sort of extra support. And part of that is nutritional deficiencies. Part of that is Um, you know, maybe some sort of dysbiosis, which would mean maybe doing some probiotics to kind of just replenish it, really focusing on probiotic rich foods. I have a very food first mentality because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you can get so much variety of probiotics and prebiotics if you're eating a whole food source. 
Um, but some people do need a little support, whether it's, you know, stomach acid, having um, HCL, betaine, um, betaine HCL to kind of support stomach acid. But a lot of those things are typically temporary. And then mm-hmm. once they go through that kind of healing process or just kind of, you know, reestablishing which nutrients are maybe critical, omega-3s is a big one too. Omega-3 fatty acids, they actually make their way to the uh, colon and can impact the gut microbiome in a really positive way. So mm-hmm. if somebody isn't getting enough omega-3s, that can help dec- um, increase diversity. So I could go through you know, every sort of nutrient, magnesium and iron and calcium, but overall, it's just it's making sure that you have enough calories and you're eating a balanced diet. And that's why I always recommend working with any sort of um, dietitian just to have them have a bird's eye view of your diet and see mm-hmm. what you could potentially um, be missing. I know you mentioned reducing fiber. That's a yeah. big, big tip. Um, do you use that with a lot of your clients? Totally. I mean, I think one of the things that people tend to do as they sort of fall into the um, HA orthorexia uh, pit <laughs> is, you know, lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and, you know, enormous salads for lunch. And, you know, that, that, that fills you up a lot, but it doesn't provide very much energy. Mm. Um, so, you know, cups and cups of spinach or whatever. And, you know, I think that a lot of times people do find that if they reduce the amount of you know, the greens and the vegetables that they're eating, um, that that A, makes space for other more energy-dense foods, and B, actually does help their, their, them digest things better. Because I think, you know, there's, um, you know, we do need, like you were saying, we need the proteins, we need the fats, we need the carbs. And so if you're existing just on, you know, just on salads or, you know, a lot of... I call it roughage. Heavy, yes. <laughs> it's roughage. It's just roughage. It's, it's, it's meant to be part of the whole system of you can't yes. just have a bunch of, you know, vegetables sitting in your GI tract, you know, imagining how, how comfortable that's going to be. And, uh, and you know, lots of fermentation going on there, right? <laughs> yeah. So if things aren't moving properly and you've got to, you know, talk about FODMAPs, you know, a lot of people will say, you, know, you go to your GI doctor, they say, well, try the low FODMAP diet. And all they're eating is fruits and vegetables. And all of those mm-hmm. fruits and vegetables are on the FODMAP list. And so what, what really we're looking into is, okay, well, you're eating all these fruits and vegetables. What happens when those fruits and vegetables sit in your GI tract because you're not eating enough? Well, they yeah. ferment, they create mm-hmm. gas, constipation, mm-hmm. bloating, and you feel like crap, basically. Yes. Yeah. So reducing yeah, fiber is, is key and, you know, living in a culture where white rice is bad, white potatoes are bad. It, it, these are great foods. They're, they're incredibly great for our digestive system. And as you mentioned, you know, cauliflower rice should not be your fuel <laughs> for a workout or for your brain for a long, you know, study session. It's just, it's not, it's not appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are so many diets out there now where you're encouraged to cut out X food group or, you know, Y food group. And I really find that he, most people, um, sort of function best when they're getting some of everything, you know, some proteins some fats, some carbs, and, you know, the exact ratios don't matter. It's not like I'm going to say you need 25% fat and 25% protein and 50%. No, it's like, you know, some of everything. And, you know, some days you might have more carbs and some days you might have more fat and some days you might have more protein and that's fine. Our bodies can deal with that as long as you're on this base level of giving it enough fuel. 
Um, it's when you're underfueling and then you're cutting out certain food groups and it, it, things tend to go a lot more haywire. Yeah. And it's that intuitiveness too. I mean, I had a client who was probably eating 20 grams of protein a day. And I said to her, there's no way this is good for your hormone balance, mm-hmm. your gut health, whatever. And I said, let's aim for, you know, 98 grams a day, go for 98 grams. And she got to a point where she hit 70 and she said, you know, 70, like I've, my cravings have gone down. My bowels are moving really well because my calories have just total gone up. But she said, you know, 98 just feels really high. Awesome. Well, then mm-hmm. 70s, 70s, your number then stick with 70, mm-hmm. you know, that intuitiveness too. This is an interesting study that I found um, about fiber that researchers found that women with the highest fiber intakes actually had the lowest estrogen, estrogen levels over the course mm-hmm. of cycles. I'm sure you've seen this. And um, they also had lower levels of reproductive hormones, um, progesterone, luteinizing hormone, and also that high fiber diets decrease beta glucuronidase, which is Mm -hmm. the enzyme that is basically responsible for reabsorption of estrogen in the colon. And so, and then fiber also binds to estrogen in the colon, Mm -hmm. in the intestine. So if you are eating too much fiber and reducing your estrogen, and we know all the benefits of estrogen and you don't have a period, then you know, really focus on balance, getting those, you know, white potatoes are not bad. White potatoes are good. In addition to lots of healthy vegetables. is not toxic. Oh my gosh. Um, No. Um, And then so variety, as I mentioned, you know, a diverse gut microbiome is fed by a diverse diet and by including all of these foods, which can also be really freeing when you know, I'll have a client who comes to me and she's been following the low FODMAP diet for, I don't know, a year or something. And because a doctor told her that would help solve her gut issues. And I say, forget the low FODMAP diet, just try eating everything. And just, you, you don't feel better the way that you're eating anyway. Mm-hmm. Eating mm-hmm. low FODMAP, if you've gone on this diet and, and you're only seeing your symptoms, you know, get worse, then let's, let's go the opposite yeah. way and see what happens. Yeah. And oftentimes we see that adding in that variety, not only mentally better, but, you know, your body starts to thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And your brain too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think that's one of the great things about recovery is just the decreased focus on food and exercise means that you can do all sorts of other things with that time. You can spend time with friends and family. I mean, maybe not so much right now, but yeah. you know, in general, I think, you know, the, the best part about recovery is not necessarily physical. It's the mental and emotional side of, um, you know, enjoying life more because you, you have the capacity to do that. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, being snippy and having low patience. And Mm -hmm. I just remember when I was under fueling, you know, I was not fun to be around. And I didn't want to go to certain social events, because I would have rather, you know, worked out or have focused Mm -hmm. on my food and would have been afraid of would I eat something and upset my digestive system. You know, there, there's so much more to life than, you know, focusing on your food and your exercise. And it's sometimes it's hard to hear that and actually understand it. But when you go yeah. through it and you trust the process, it is the most liberating experience. Yep. And yeah, yeah so stress, I mean, stress is, stress is a really big one. And it's, it's easy to just say, well, reduce your stress. But, you know, doing things like, you know, yoga and meditation, calling a friend, you know, coloring. I, I color sometimes, you know, my boyfriend and I have done that on the weekends before. 
whatever it is that, that can help you, um, you know, a lot of people, especially my clients, you know, exercise is a stress release for them Mm -hmm. and it's hard for them to take that away. So we'll we'll try to keep things in like light walking and, uh, especially outside, you know, helping to elevate cortisol in the morning and then, you know, normalize levels in the afternoon, um, but what are your recommendations for that? Cause that's a tough one. I, I struggle a lot with clients who tell me that, you know, this is my stress release. How am I supposed to reduce activity? Well, I think one of the things that's helpful to understand is that the reason that exercise feels good is because the, of the beta endorphins and those actually also help suppress your reproductive system. <laughs> so it's all part of the kind of cortisol stress system. Um, so it feels good, but it's actually, you know, that feeling of feeling, you know, that feel good feeling is actually suppressing your system even more. Um, so I think really focusing on more mindful exercise and not the high intensity variety, but like going for walks outside, you know, I think is hugely helpful for mental health and, you know, it it does, it feels good to move our bodies. It really does. And, you know, I, I absolutely believe that exercise is incredibly healthy for us Um, at the right times. You know, I think when you have HA and you're trying to recover your period, it's, it's very clear that high intensity exercise slows down or even can prevent recovery entirely in certain people. Um, So taking a break, you know, you, you, you have to think of it like an illness and, you know, you, when you're, when you have the flu, you, you lie in bed for a while because you, you know, you, you just physically can't move. If you've broken a bone, you know, you put a cast on it and you don't use that bone for a while. So it's the mm. same thing with recovering from HA and exercise. And so I think finding other activities to take up your, to take up the time that you used to spend exercising um, you know, whether it be something like finding a show on, you know, Netflix or whatever that you really enjoy, um, you know, that can be, that can be good. It's so easy to binge watch things on Netflix. <laughs> so easy. So easy. Plays, you're, you know, <laughs> Are you still so watching? Easy. Of course I'm still watching. Let's go. <laughs> um, you know, I actually finished a cross stitch when I was resting from my HA. I, yeah, I was doing a Beatrix oh, cool. Potter alphabet sampler and each letter took me about 26 hours. Um, wow. So that was a good, you know, that was a good use of my time. And I was sitting still, you know, I would sit down and watch TV and do some cross-stitching. So I was still occupying myself in a way that felt productive, mm-hmm. um, right, you know, not just, so, you know, that's taking not up scrolling some through social like media that. and um, comparing yourself to other people or. Well, this was in the days before social media. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> that too. I think it's, you know, we look, I, I was, um, I was looking at someone's um, apps the other day. They were showing me like all this, it's Strava. It's a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, an yeah. app, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with it where you can kind of look at what everybody else is doing and what mm. their run was or their biking was that day. And I remember seeing it thinking, gosh, if I had seen that in when I was mm-hmm. during my recovery, I would have just lost it. That would have been such a trigger for me because. Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah. So yes, I, have a, I have an app like that that I use. Um, I have a heart rate tracker, um, but I don't like, I'm not connected with anyone else. I just have it for me. And, yeah. you know, I like seeing how my heart rate changes with different types of exercise. Like I still love ice hockey. That's been my thing for many years. And so you know, watching my heart rate go up and down as I, you know, as I'm on the ice and off the ice, like I find that fascinating, but I don't need, you know, I don't compare that with anyone else because, 
really what what anybody else is doing is immaterial to your own life. And I think that's, you know, like you said, social media is horrible for that because we're constantly comparing. And so I think especially during recovery, getting, you know, unfollowing people that don't, you know, that aren't encouraging recovery, that are making you feel this, you know, comparison trap, like I'm not, a, you know, I'm not as good, I'm not doing well, like unfollow those people. You know, you don't have to necessarily... Um, unfriend people or whatever but just don't you know just you can mute accounts and things like that too and you know there's so much out there and be intentional about it be intentional when you spend your time on there and an interesting point too to just bring up about exercise is that research shows that if you exercise too much your gut bacteria shifts in a negative way so some Mm -hmm. exercise can benefit you in a positive way but you can actually create more digestive issues by exercising too much too intensely and that's, you know, I have a client spot on where, you know, gets acid reflux as soon as the intensity starts to become too much. And that's because this mm-hmm. dysbiosis starts to come. And then as soon as we cut back, you know, normal bowel movements, no bloating, stuff like that. So it's, it's mm-hmm. your, your other point about individualization and not comparison. Somebody might be able to be at, you know, a certain level of body fat, certain amount of calories, still get a period, be healthy, happy. Mm-hmm. And if you compare yourself to that person's journey, then you're setting yourself up for six, for for failure because that's not your journey. It's a totally different yeah. human being. Yeah, um, and that that kind of brings us around to another point that I wanted to make earlier is that there's so there's no one size fits all recovery. You know, everybody's recovery is different, and everybody's journey into HA is different. So. Um, you know, often people think that it's only people who are anorexic, like teeny tiny, um, or who, you know, exercise, you know, Olympic level athlete, like exercising hours and hours every day. And none of that is true. So I, I've seen people with HA at all body sizes, all body shapes. Um, I've seen it in people, like some people don't exercise at all. Some people are exercising multiple hours a day. So it really doesn't matter what the specific parameters are um of a you know of an individual person if if the period is missing then that's really the you know that's telling you that something isn't right for that person like whether you know what how that compares to anybody else is really immaterial because we all have unique genomes and unique environments that we grow up in and that we've survived in now so it really, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's no particular magic numbers in any of this, like no body fat number, no weight number, no BMI that says above this, you will have, you, you will be fine and below it, you will have HA or whatever. It's, you know, everything is very unique and individualized. Um, Which is hard for people, right? Because it's, you yes. know, you want a number, you want to say, okay, well, once yeah. I hit this weight, I know I'll get a period or mm-hmm. I know I'll be healthy or and it's unfortunately, I, I remember, you know, my endocrinologist saying, well, what weight did you get your, um, you know, first period at? And I was like, well, first of all, I was nine. So <laughs> if I was, if I was the weight I was at when I was nine, we'd have an issue. <laughs> but yes, when I had a healthy period, so, okay, well, what was your adult weight? And I held on to that weight so much where I thought, oh my gosh, okay, that's the number I'm striving for. And it really just derailed my progress because then I wasn't intuitive about anything. I was really just focusing so much on a number versus tuning into my body and just, you know, figuring out what felt right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's a really good point. We often think, oh, I should be the same weight that I was like X many years ago. And it's like, no, our bodies change and grow and mature and 
you know, there's nothing magic about any number. So, I mean, I generally encourage people not to even, not to even weigh themselves because that number actually tells you nothing about your health or anything else. It's just something that gets in our heads and kind of discourages any sort of progress towards recovery. And, you know, I mean, I was, um, I was over at my mom's the other day and she, I found a notebook of hers and she weighed herself every day for years on end and has it all like written down in this notebook. And I'm like, why? Like, what, what, what was the, I mean, I, I can't ask her. She, she unfortunately has Alzheimer's, so I can't ask her what she was thinking, but it's just like, what, what was going through her head that she thought that this number was so important that she had to write it down in a journal every damn day. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, that makes me so sad. And yeah. it, it reminds me of a time when I worked in a nursing home as a clinical dietitian. And one of the women said to me, you know, her best advice for me getting older was keep a diary of really positive things so that one day you can go back and read it and just smile because, mm. she said, you know, I sit here all day and that's the only thing I have to look forward to. And if you just kind of like pull yourself out of diet culture for a second mm-hmm. or pull yourself out of, you know, the negative thinking and think of those two scenarios you know, if you're, when you're old and you're maybe in a nursing home or you have Alzheimer's, do you want to look at the journal that has a list of all of your weights? Or do you want to read a journal that has, you know, the, the times when you shared a cupcake with your best friend or the times when you enjoyed a glass of wine with, you know, your mom or, you know, that's a, that's a powerful thing to ask yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, that, that would be a beautiful journal to read. So I, know, I, I, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so in terms of the gut stuff, I would say, um, you know, also eliminating diet foods, you know, there's, mm. you don't label any foods Absolutely. as good or bad, but I mean, you know, they're adding, uh, artificial sweeteners to things. They're adding all these binders and they're adding these things because they're taking the gluten out and they're taking the sugar out and they're taking the fat out. Mm-hmm. And those are things that are very likely going to make your gut worse. So rather than choosing a keto bar, eat a full fat, high calorie bar. Cause I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, <laughs> the impact that that has on your gut bacteria is going to be much healthier than the impact that the artificial sweeteners is going to have on your gut bacteria. And, you know, from a health standpoint, from a bloated standpoint, digestion standpoint, you're going to feel better if you just eat whole real foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think those were my, my biggest takeaways is just, you know, reducing your stress, really reduce your fiber, focus on balance of all types of foods, make sure that you're working with at least meet with a professional once to just see, make sure you're getting your omega threes and your calcium and, and make sure that you understand just on a general level, what types of things you do need to be eating, um, eliminating those diet foods, reducing stress and reducing the stress of exercise is there anything else that you would kind of add for, or I guess what would be your three main takeaways for the listener about if they are experiencing HA, what could they do today? Or what would be your biggest advice that they could implement right away to kind of, I guess, just make their journey a little bit more, you know, other than buying your book, obviously, because I, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to push that, of course, because it's necessary and it's important to read it. But um, what would be your three main takeaways? I think number one is making sure that you're feeling your body properly. Um, you know, that's eating throughout the day and eating in, you know, getting enough energy, eating all the different, all eating all the foods. I mean, foods. really having nothing off, nothing off limits because, um, 
you know, even if there is a food like you know, sugar is 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 being demonized at the moment, and you know, but our bodies have enzymes to digest sugar, and it breaks down into molecules that our bodies can use for quick fuel. Um, you know, even if it is toxic, you know, I, I think that it's it's not like one cookie is going to automatically cause diabetes or you know whatever it is. Um, so I think just sort of pushing back on some of those, you know, so I think maybe my number two thing is pushing back on some of the diet culture stuff that's out there and just really understanding that so many of the, so many of the things that are pushed on us are stemming from a place of enormous fat phobia and, you know, don't, you know, don't do this because you'll, you know, you'll get fat and, you know, it, it's, um, you know, so many things that we do are out of this fear of, a, you know, an increase in body size and the idea that somebody in a larger body is less valuable has been, you know, permeated throughout our society. But, that, you know, that's totally not true. Like uh, our body size has nothing to do with our value. And so I think, you know, pushing back on a lot of those messages that we get and really thinking critically about them and why, you know, why am I being told it's bad to eat at night, you know, and because I think that's, you know, that's one thing that is often pushed on. It's like, don't eat, don't eat at night, don't eat at night. It's like, well, why, you know, because the idea is then the food's going to sit in your, you know, you're not as active. And so more of the food is going to go to, to, to fat, but, you know, our fat is actually a hormonal organ. It, it, it converts testosterone to estradiol and it generates leptin and adiponectin. And, you know, those are actually things that our bodies need. So this idea that like fat is bad, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's protects our vital organs, including yeah, our so many, track so many and keeps us warm. And, and yeah. yeah, I think that's a, you know, a really important point is just, you know, body size is, is very sensitive for a lot of people. And we need to remember that a lot of these, these messages that we're getting about what's good or bad, they're, they're preying on our insecurities. This is a mm-hmm. business an yeah, industry absolutely. that knows where we are vulnerable, which is mm-hmm. so sad and twisted when you think about it, but it's also can hopefully be really empowering for people to realize that it's not coming from a place of what makes you truly worthy. It's coming from a business industry that knows exactly where your vulnerabilities are and how to target you in a way to keep you a consumer. And when you realize that, I think first you kind of get mad, right? <laughs> like, like the five stages of grief where you're like, well, I'm pissed. That's ridiculous. Like, how could that you know, be? And then you kind of go into the acceptance phase where you, you know, recognize, okay, well, you know, that's the way it is, you know, how can I manage that and find a healthy relationship with myself? And some of the tips that you mentioned about, you know, finding a positive, uh, you know, a positive group, like your Facebook group is fantastic. I mean, anytime that I'm having a bad day, and I go and read, Mm -hmm. you know, someone experience and, you know, okay, like, you know, my body's changing, and there's a lot going on, but let's focus on the positives. And, and understanding that you you might never love your body 100%, you might never be completely satisfied where you are. And, you know, you don't have to like, that's not necessarily the goal is to absolutely be comfortable with where you're at at all times. But understanding that your body needs to be healthy, and that that should mm-hmm. be a priority. And it's a journey. It's a journey of learning to to have self love, despite the fact that you might not love every single part of your body. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then I think 
I think the number three thing would be um, cutting out high intensity exercise, um, you know, cutting down, cutting out, uh, because I really continually see the impact that that has on people recovering, um, you know, recovering missing cycles and just recovering in general. Like, I think that there are so many times where we get into this idea that, you know, if I don't exercise, I'm going to lose all my fitness. And, mm. you know, if you take six months off, then yes, you're, you you do lose some level of fitness, but it actually comes back really quickly. Um, and so I think, again, there's this, there's this fear aspect that's built into it. And, you know, it, the, that's also based on fat phobia and just this idea, like, if I stop exercising, I'm going to turn into a puddle of jelly or, you know, whatever. And it, again, it's not really based in fact. And I think taking some time off of exercise and seeing that, oh, my body doesn't actually change that quickly and I don't lose my strength that quickly. And it's like, oh, okay, so I can take rest days and that's okay. And it's actually probably healthy for me to take rest days. So I think that sort of changing our mindset around exercise and how important it is and how often we need to do it and everything, I think that also can be really helpful for sort of long-term having a healthy relationship with exercise where yes, like I said, exercise is healthy, it is good for you. But if you don't exercise on a particular day because of, you know, X, Y, Z happens, that's okay. And I think learning that by taking some time completely off the high intensity exercise um, can really, again, make your life much, much more easy and free to live in because you don't have to stress. Like if I miss my workout one day, whatever, I'll do it tomorrow or I won't do it or, you know, no big deal. Like I'm going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so, Yeah. I, I would, I can definitely relate to that. And I would think a lot, a large part of the reason why I became a dietitian was because what I needed to kind of not, I would say convince me, but to motivate me to make the changes was to learn the actual science behind it. And so mm -hmm. when I teach my clients, you know, when cortisol gets high, because you've been doing high intensity interval training, that actually can create fat storage. It can actually create more digestive issues when they understand that. And this is not everybody. Some people don't operate this way, but a lot of my clients will respond really positively to that. And it's also very empowering when you can mm -hmm. look at an advertisement for, you know, lose 30 pounds in two weeks. And you're like, well, that's not healthy. That's and that's right. coming from muscle mass. And, you know, that's a or, good, you know, your liver, your kidneys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah. So I think when you're able to, you know, I, I really focus on education with my clients because, you know, when you understand um, education is power, simply mm -hmm. put, education is power. Yeah. When you understand what's physiologically going on in the body and what your body needs and how, how it responds when you fuel it. It's, it's just like a magical, beautiful thing, yeah. especially to be a female, you know? And when you fuel it and you nourish it, it responds in such a positive way and you feel great and, you know, just remember that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So this, I mean, I could talk about this all day with you. It's <laughs> such, a, such a fun, fun, but very, you know, it's an overlooked, overlooked topic and a lot of, clinicians have normalized not having a period. And mm -hmm. that's why you've done the work that you've done is, you know, your own experience and, and empowering other women. And so I'm just so grateful for you and your book. Um, so you work one on one with people, is that correct? I do? Yes. Okay. Yep. So if someone is interested in um, working one on one with you, and, and you don't just work with people with HA, you also work with people who are trying to get pregnant. 
So it's mostly people trying to get pregnant with or after HA. Um, okay. So I, you know, I don't really deal with other forms of um, infertility, but you know, I certainly can help guide people through sort of the process of getting pregnant and um, you know all the different fertility treatments that are available. Okay. Um, yeah, generally, generally, I'm working with women that do have or have had HA. Yeah, I had one particular person ask me prior to the episode if you had any advice for. Um, someone who's trying to think about family planning uh, after going through HA. Um, so I know we're kind of like wrapping up, but do you have any like general statements to, to answer that question? Well, I think tracking your cycles is, you know, I think that's really a great way to do that. And, you know, knowing the times of the month where you're actually fertile and likely to get pregnant and using, you know, using some form of contraception during those times. Um, you know, I think that, understanding our menstrual cycles is hugely important for those of us who have them. And, you know, so I think that that would, that would really be my recommendation is learn your signs for ovulation and, you know, you're fertile for the sort of five to six days before you, probably five days before you ovulate um, when you're having egg white cervical mucus. And so learning about that, you know, maybe cervical position, all, you know, all those things. It's, it's, it's actually so fascinating when you kind of, put it all together and you have that knowledge. And like you said, the education I think is really, um, it's, it's, it's magical to really understand what your body is doing and not just be surprised when your period comes every month. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I know I ovulated on X day and I know my luteal phase is, you know, 12 days long or whatever it is. And so, you know, know I, the details. I get my period and yeah. 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 So use an app. I mean, that's what, you know, a lot of my clients will get them on an app and they're like, well, I track my period. And it's like, Okay, but what about everything in between that? Because that's yeah, yeah, as well. So yeah, that's good. That's good important. advice for her. I appreciate that. Um, now, the most important question um, is, well, so where can people find you if they're interested in working with you? Um, so they can book appointments with me at noperiod.info slash appointments. Okay. Um, and if anyone's interested in getting the book, it's at noperiod.info slash book. So nice and easy. <laughs> awesome. And then... Um, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and the support group is noperiod.info slash support. Yeah, and it's an amazing, amazing group. I Every time I see a notification, the females in that group are so inspiring and empowering and vulnerable. And it was a huge, huge, I, I honestly don't think I would have been able to recover if it wasn't for that group. Yeah, I think it, it's incredibly helpful to have other people to talk to and get feedback from because many of us, when we're going through this recovery, we don't have anybody else in our life that um, is in the same boat or understands. And there can be a lot of misinformation from other people around you who are trying to be helpful, but don't, you know, don't necessarily know everything about how fueling is related to menstrual cycles and all of that. So yeah. Having a safe place where you can, you know, see success stories on a daily basis and, you know, go and, you know, share your positives or, you know, get advice about, you know, this, that or the other thing is happening. What should I do? It's, you know, I, I think that it is hugely helpful for people. Absolutely. So what is your favorite childhood memory with food? Um, can I share two? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I was actually, I was actually born in South Africa oh. and, um, they have, you know, the, the, the foods and treats are more like there's a lot of British influence there. So one of the things I really remember growing up was the ice cream truck would come and we would get um, soft serve ice cream, but with a chocolate bar, it's called a flaky in the middle. Mm. And just the combination of like the crumbly chocolate and the soft serve ice cream was absolutely divine. Oh um, and then the other thing is my sister and I found these 
um, sort of chips called ghost pups, and they're like a they're like a, a little ball, kind of like the cheese balls that you can get here, but the flavoring on them is just magical. And so when I what are they called ghost would, pops, ghost pops, yes, I'm writing it's them got down. like tomato, like spicy flavoring on it that's just out of out of this world, and they like melt in your mouth. <laughs> I'm like drooling just thinking about it, especially the soft serve. I worked in an ice cream shop growing up and soft serve ice cream is hands down my favorite thing in Mm -hmm. the world. So Mm -hmm. those are so wonderful. I love hearing those stories. Um, Well, Nicola, thank you so much for coming on. This has been such a pleasure. Um, Any final thoughts or anything at all that you wanted to leave the listeners with? I think my final thought is that even though recovery seems really hard in the moment, when you come out the other side, the the added joy that you have in your life and the understanding of your body and all of that just makes everything so worth it. So, yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, let's end there then. Thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, please visit nutritionrewired.com where you can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut. This is a great resource for anybody who's looking to improve their health and a really great place to start if you are kind of confused about nutrition and gut health and you're looking for some recipes to make that change really delicious. So thanks again for tuning in. As always, don't forget to share the health.